would really get along with. Um, let me pray for, for us as we go into this. Father, we thank you for today. We ask that you would uh, order my thoughts right now. We ask that you would cordon off this space. That you would clear it of anything that would bring confusion to us, anything that would bring uh, cloudiness to us, any, any feelings of bitterness or anger or unforgiveness or all those things or, or just errant thoughts that pop into our heads or whatever it is that would keep, we pray that you would keep all those things out and you would speak clearly to us, all of us, even me who is babbling up here, Father, I pray that you would speak to me as well. I pray that we would all hear your voice through your word today and that we would glorify you by, by how it affects us and changes us. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So uh, if you were here last week, you would, you would have heard me say the same thing I'm about to say. <laughs> this series is uh, on the heart of worship, right? The heart of worship is what it's called, right? Addressing the need to love God and love others as we sort of live out this daily uh, attitude of grateful worship of what, what's been done to us or given to us in Christ. And we said that the way that we live reveals you know, what we value most that um, God calls for worship of our entire being uh, when we read the Scriptures. And what we do in life reflects our worship of Christ, or maybe not, <laughs> right? Uh, we said last week that worship is all-encompassing sort of all-encompassing gratitude, that it overflows uh, out to others around us, right? So last week we began to look at Mark chapter 12 where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, if you remember that, and he answered that with, with giving the Shema of Israel uh, in Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 9, uh, these chapters. Uh, and, he, and he states that worship, he stated that worship means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Uh, and, and a love, like I said, that, that overflows to others practically, in a very practical way, reflecting God's heart and how we are living uh, before others. So my proposition to you today is not like, unlike that. It's basically that to love others means that we have learned um, who we are in Christ. I think that's an extremely important point. And, and, and then how others fit into this plan or his plan, God's plan. And as a result, that our actions towards others point to our heart of worship, our true heart of worship. And today we're going to look at two passages leading us deeper into this, this thinking or this understanding. And let's begin today, if you want to turn to page 69 in your pew Bibles, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 16. So page 659, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I'm not going to put these verses on the screen so you're, I, because I want us to get used to opening our Bibles, right, and, and actually reading for ourselves. So we're going to take these concepts one, one at a time because he uses two illustrations here, salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, I want you want to stop there for a minute and just say that this tells us three things. You may think it doesn't, but I, I think it does, and I'm going to explain that. But it tells us three things. It says basically that due to who we are in Christ, right, 
that we've, been a, we've become a preserving influence on others, on the world, right? And secondly, that that influence is effective through a worshipful life that is reflective of holiness and purity that reflects God, uh, his heart, right? Um, and that, that that life should not be diluted or polluted, right? Now, salt for us mostly has to do with how how our food tastes, right? My mom is an old southern cook sitting over there in the sunshine, and she uses quite a bit of salt. She's, she's a salty cooker, and I like that. I love, I love the way my mom cooks. It's nice. But, um, but it usually is just for us, like, taste. But to the original readers, they, they thought of it not only as taste, but food prep, uh, pres- preservation. Sorry, I was going to say preparation. Preservation, right? So uh, they didn't have an air, uh, uh, not air conditioners, refrigerators. God, I can't even think straight this morning. But anyway, verse 13 can be sort of a confusing verse, you know, it, it, and we want to address that first because you might read that and you might have this like a little startling feeling where you say, oh, God might throw me out if I don't produce something. If I don't do things, if I don't do my good works well, he might just throw me out, right? But you know, as if there's a tie with that verse, with uh, salvation, gaining salvation, keeping salvation, earning salvation, with the good works that we do, right? Uh, or the losing of my salvation. But let me reassure you that it has nothing to do with a, the assurance of your salvation or the earning of your salvation. It just doesn't. And, but it has everything to do with the effectiveness of, of our witness of our life as this preservative thing as a result of our salvation. Now, Scripture teaches, we know that, Scripture teaches that good works follow salvation, right? They never precede it in a sense. Uh, we are, they are a grateful response in worship before God. Never do we earn our salvation by our good works, right? It says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no, no one can boast, right? For we are God's handiwork, uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, uh, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, God, the, our faith, our salvation is a gift, and, and, and it's not by how, how well we live our lives or anything like that, but as a result of being saved, we, are, we, we respond in gratitude in, in living out the gospel of Christ in our lives. You know, Jesus is not stupid. We know that. Jesus uh, knows that salt can't lose its saltiness. It just can't, right? Even if it's unused for a long time, it's not like something that goes bad you know, or whatever, his expression refers to salt being diluted or mixed with other substances so that it's to, to the point that it's ineffective or it's undesirable, right? The root meaning of the verb is actually to, uh, to make foolish or to show to be something to be foolish, as in 1 Corinthians 1.20 or in the passive voice to become foolish as in Romans 1.22, so only in this verse and in Luke 14:34 do, do lexicons really give it the meaning for in the passive voice of become tasteless. It really means to become foolish, right? 
So think of it this way. If you dropped a bag of salt on the floor and you swept it up, and it was a really dirty floor, and you swept it up with like, you know, an old dustpan and a dirty, dirty, you know, brush, um, you wouldn't put it back in the salt shaker. You wouldn't put it back in your cabinet, you know, like, and use it for cooking or anything like that. It, it's still salty, right? It hasn't lost its saltiness, but the impurities make it unsuitable for its intended purpose, right? Maybe some of you would use it, but I wouldn't, right? I'd, I'd throw it away. You, you, you can't wash it, right? Salt, salt dissolves and all you're left with is dirt and debris, right? So you throw it out, right? So Jesus, what Jesus is saying to us is don't become foolish. Don't mix with things, right? Don't become foolish. Speaking of that attitude of worship revealed in grateful, uh, grateful pursuit of holiness and purity in life of being transformed by his word, right? So if we imagine the gospel as sort of salt within us, you know, he's saying don't mix that with worldly sin or pride or thought lives or thoughts that are contradictory to his word, right? Um, Keep your saltiness. Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So allow God's word to renew your mind and change you. And he's, so he's saying, seek purity of heart, soul, mind, and strength through renewal in him. Right? Otherwise, if you don't, your influence and your ability to be gospel salt or, or preservative in the lives of others around you will be hindered. It, it'll become ineffective. It'll become undesirable. There's uh, one commentary, he said it this way, and I like how he says this. He says, this phrase refers to the world's response to Christians if they do not function as they should. Christianity may make its peace with the world and avoid persecution, but it's thereby rendered impotent to fulfill its divinely ordained role. It, was thus ulti- it will thus ultimately be rejected, and be- to be rejected is to be thrown out, trampled underfoot, right? To be rejected by those with whom it has sought compromise, right? And that is a prophetic word for us the, in, in this day and age for when, while many Christians are making peace with the world by twisting or turning away from God's word, either by peer pressure or errant desire. For instance, this week, <laughs> I thought it was a joke at first, but it wasn't. Uh, an article came out about the Living Faith Church in San Diego, California, pastored by Stephen and Angela De La Cruz. And the problem with the church is that Angela is an active porn star. That's, that's what her job outside of being a pastor of the church is. And her husband is very proud of this fact. How do we get there, Right? How do we get there? I mean, I thought it was like a Babylon Bee joke, but it wasn't. And they said, they actually said in the article, you would think this is a Babylon Bee joke, but it's not. They tout themselves as a church by sinners, for sinners, and the least judgmental church out there. And that is an extreme example of making peace with the world, which will be rejected in the long run when people finally see that it's actually, it doesn't work. It's not of God. It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It will eat its own, right? But it begs the question for us, you know, where do we pollute 
our heart, soul, mind, strength, and message, right? And that's just something that we should constantly be churning around in our hearts as we think through life. Then Jesus gives this image of of us being light. Again, uh, right there in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, verse 14. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we have pure salt, and pure unhindered light is what these are the two images that he's using. We know that Jesus is referred to as the light of the world in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. His followers are to reflect that light or reflect that light as they walk with him, called to let our good works shine before others so that, in order that, they may praise God. Not praise us, but praise God, right? Like a city illuminating a countryside, you know, in, on, at night at, on top of a hill or a lamp providing uh, light to all the people in the house. And I want, I want to really point out that good works are most naturally seen, and you might not think this, good works are most naturally seen in the fruits, fruits of keeping with repentance. As uh, we see in Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, produce fruit, producing fruit are good works, right? The things that come out of our lives and, and, and uh, what, we, what, we, yeah, what we produce in life. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. You know, our light is unhindered if we... Uh, or I'm sorry, our light is hindered if we cover it, right? If we put something over it. If we, if we cover it over with the patterns and the philosophies and the sin of this world, right? We compromise its integrity. We water down the message. We, we, we try to wash off the salt, and the salt goes away, and all we're left with is the, 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 all the dirt and debris. It stays pure as we live a life in keeping with repentance of submitting ourselves constantly to Jesus' lordship in our lives, of allowing him to dictate and and we follow, allowing him to lead us in what's really morally right and good for all peoples, not just us. All these conversations, right, if you remember, are with the religious law experts, right? These, these guys who were high up in, 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 the, in, in the faith, and they, they took pride in their position as descendants of Abraham, that lineage, you know, like, oh, I'm a Jew, you know, I was, I, you know my whole lineage is this. And, and we could also sort of take pride in being called Christians, you know, wearing that label. Um, but Jesus said there must be evidence of true faith leading to a transformed life committed to repentance and reflective of God and witness to others. There must be. Metaphors of salt and light raise important questions about Christian involvement in society, right? We're regarding all forms of sort of what we see a lot of now is separation and withdrawal uh, and things like that. We're not called, by the way, to, 
to control secular power structures necessarily. We're, We're not called to Christianize the world's legislation and values. These things overlap sometimes a little bit, and we're called to speak into them, but we're not called to be the controlling agents of all these things, right? We must remain active sort of preservative agents and even irritants sometimes in calling people to heed God's standards. Um, neither, neither should we uh, form sort of isolated little Christian enclaves which, which uh, everybody else disregards because they either look prideful and angry or, or arrogant or they look even maybe fearful and cowardly. Like we're cowering over in the corner, not wanting to, to get involved in anything, or we're, we're, we're prideful, like casting you know, judgment down from an ivy tower. That's not our place either, right? If we do those things, we cease to be salt and light. We really do. We're salt and light when we worship God in all ways, when our focus stays on Jesus, humbly walking in and proclaiming truth with sincere loving conviction. Deep conviction on ourselves. In other words, conviction of not only words, but, but that it ch- has changed our lives as well, right? So we cease to be people of light if we cease to live in content, constant repentance of, of, of our sin and our pride, right? If we, or, or if we politicize our message, aligning it with any party. Or when we allow the world to define morality instead of a, God defining morality from his word. When we refuse to speak truth into someone's life out of uh, fear of man, we're afraid of the reaction. Or when we don't speak truth, since we care more for another's sensitive nature rather than the eternal good of their soul, right? We avoid those conversations for that reason as well. Loving worship of God precedes the love we show to neighbor precisely because he is the source of all goodness and love. Not the other way around, right? So worship is a response of love and of gratitude for God shown in a transformed life full of salt and light. It's it's who Jesus is and it's who we are in him which drives our worship of him and then our witness towards others in the good works that we do in this world. Grateful worship of God with our entire person leads uh, to us listening well to God, to what God wants for others, pe- other people in our lives around us. As we live in this, this, this state of grateful worship, God opens our eyes and our hearts to, to His desire for the people around us, right? God intends the church to care for one another. We see that in Acts 2 and 4. But he also intends for these deliberate actions to move out towards our neighbors, right? And we see that in Acts 9 through 11. Jesus intended his followers to be salt and light, right? Visible and engaged uh, with the world in a preservative and illuminating way, commiserate with the true worship as the greatest command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And with that in mind, let's go to Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 37. Excuse me, 37, page 708 in your pew Bibles. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 29. We'll get there in just a second as you turn there. But uh, here in this passage, Jesus is again 
questioned by an expert in the law, and he, he's asking, how do I obtain eternal life? Like, how do I get there, right? And Jesus asked, well, what's written in the law? What, what do you see? What, how do you interpret it? What do you think about it? You know, what does it say to you? And the guy answers, again, with the Shema of Israel, which Jesus has already stated is the greatest commandment, right? And, but Jesus then says, do this and you will live, right? And again, the question becomes, is eternal life to be earned through behavior? You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're just reading this and you don't really understand it, But you have to understand that Jesus is driving home that to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, isn't just adopting a a new code of behavior. It's not that shallow. Rather, it is a dynamic spiritual life or relationship with God that affects all aspects of our lives. We can't compartmentalize God. We, we often say at 6-8, everything is spiritual, and that's true, from making your bed to coming to church. Everything is spiritual. Gratitude for who we are in Christ sort of ignites a passion of loving action and holiness and purity, transforming behavior in the Christian, right? Transforming our lives. The worshipful sort of love and gratitude towards God uh, leads to practical, real love of others around us. But for a Jewish expert in the law, the natural question right at that moment when, when he's having this conversation is, who's my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? Which he does ask in verse 29, and that's where we start. It says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes they beat him and went away leaving him half dead very familiar story the good samaritan right verse 31 a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side so too a levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side but a samaritan remember jews and samaritans hate each other right But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went even farther than just taking pity. Listen to it. It says, verse 34, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Sounds kind of nasty to me, but I guess that was a good thing back then. But then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii, which was two days' wages. That's quite a bit of money, right? And he gave them to the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, notice he doesn't say Samaritan. He doesn't want to bring himself to say a Samaritan, right? But he said the one who had mercy on him, right? That's how he answers. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise, right? So Jesus follows this man's original question with a parable and then a final question which challenges the guy's overall intent, right? And he ends by asking who was the real neighbor? Who's the neighbor? And he doesn't actually answer the man's question, but he invites the guy to answer it for himself, right? Although according to Jesus, we understand, anybody can see that there is a right answer right? You know, he can't just come up with any answer. There is a right answer. 
And we know that the, that that steep descent of 17 miles through rocky terrain and you know this desolate sort of empty rocky area connecting two wealthy cities offered ample opportunity uh, for bandits. When we used to drive in Sumatra up the Trans-Sumatran Highway, which was basically just a little tiny road, uh, at night it was very dangerous. They would drop. Uh, palm trees over the road to stop your car and then rob you by knife point and stuff like that. So these places are, you know, do get dangerous, right? And his audience, though, as he's telling this story, would automatically assume that this unidentified traveler was going to be Jewish. That's who they would assume it was. It was. And you remember in Leviticus 19:18, the neighbor is the is the one to be loved right that's that's what the scripture says and 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 in this sense this neighbor in the story should be the wounded man but know that typically you you know jews interpreted neighbor to be only other jews they didn't they definitely wouldn't have applied that to samaritans right but jesus here expands their view expands the way they're seeing the world around them, and he pushes the neighborly relation actually to be reciprocal, right? So a Jewish audience would regard it as humiliating to receive such extravagant love from a Samaritan because they hated them, right? Therefore, Jesus' sort of concept of neighborliness goes far beyond some sort of a patronizing benevolence shown by the chosen people to somebody less fortunate. So it's very significant that in this story, it's not the Jewish man helping the Samaritan, but the other way around. It would have been a very different story if that was the case. You know, it's, it's, it's not in Jesus' basic understanding of the law, which he goes out on a limb here, but it's the radical way that he applies it. This parable sort of subverts, you know, not the ethical demands of the law, but the Jewish sense of ethnic superiority. I saw a recent interview of Jewish people, uh, and they, they asked, are, are you better than Gentiles? And they asked all these Jews, and you could tell some of them didn't want to answer the question, but you knew the answer they were going to give. And some were just very plain, yeah, we're better. Yeah, we're better. And that's, that's the continued sort of, not everybody, all these details this parable isn't primarily a call to universal benevolence as we might think but it's really a challenge to social and ethnic stereotyping it's a challenge to racism right so for a jew to be kind to a samaritan right if it was the other way around that might be unnatural for him to do but it's still you know such an act could sort of uh afford this smug, you know, like sense of superior goodness in him. But to receive unconditional love from a Samaritan would, would really take this Jewish guy way out of his comfort zone. It challenges the basis of Jewish identity as the true people of God. This parable, properly understood, is one of the most powerful challenges of racism in the Bible. By the way, I've never understood how anybody could come up with a racist idea from the Bible. God creates all peoples, all different, and then he calls us to go reach each other and, and tells you to love everybody. Well, how do you get racism out of that? You got to want to get it, right? You got to want to twist it, right? It's just not there. 
It's not there. And this is one of the most powerful challenges to it. He's saying, you guys aren't even close, right? You're not even close to following the law of God as you want. Loving God means loving and receiving love like a neighbor from even those people that you would normally hate. He's just put everybody on equal footing with the Jews. No wonder he was kind of unpopular, right? Let's recap with what we've learned so far. In Christ, we've become a preserving influence on others. We've become salt. That's not an arrogant statement because it's not us that it actually is. It is the, it's the work of Christ through us that is a preserving agent. That influence is effective through a worshipful life that is reflective of holiness and purity. It is pure light. Thirdly, that holiness and purity must not be diluted or polluted or it loses its, its effectiveness, Right? It becomes polluted when we disagree with God uh, in heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's naive to think that sin is just a few sort of base actions like cheating on my wife or something like that. It's also shown in errant thought in my head or in errant attitude in my heart as well. It's shown in my pride, right? And now we learn that worshipful love trumps feelings and natural affinities and even personal desires. That it crosses social and ethnic boundaries. That it is extremely practical in building others up in physical ways and verbal ways and caring ways. And finally, that serving God is a natural step to serving others. That that serving others is born out of our service to God. Living out the story of a good neighbor is not always the most easy thing in the world. It may put us in very difficult, very stretched uh, positions. Sometimes we have to endure hardship to learn how to better serve people. Our experiences teach us valuable lessons sometimes in generosity and kindness and hope and we don't even know what God is doing until after the fact when she was 18 years old uh, singer-songwriter Jewel Kilcher that was her last name Kilcher was homeless and she had lived in her car for quite a long time but then her car got stolen and she was walking the streets of the city and she's kind of wondering all the time where she's going to get her next meal and all that stuff and at one point she even shoplifted for food to feed herself and then one evening while she was walking down the street she saw this dress in a window she really wanted it and she contemplated stealing it right and it was at that moment that she realized man I feel so alone and, and the depths of what she had sunk in her life and how, how just desperate she was. And it was an awakening for her that left a mark on her heart and especially as it relates to caring for others, right? And so in the midst of that season in life, she penned the words for the song, Hands. And uh, concerning that song, she said this. Excuse me. Years later, things turned around and this song became a hit. My husband and I went, ca- went camping in Northern California, and as we were coming down from the mountains, we noticed an American flag at half-mast. We thought a fireman may have perished because fires aren't uncommon as they are burning right now, right? Uh, 
As we came down further, there were more flags at half mast. Finally, and if you've ever been in the Sierra Nevada, the mountain range there, man, it is like no cell phone coverage, no, you know, the radio doesn't work, that stuff. So finally the radio worked as they got lower and lower. And, and we learned that the Twin Towers had come down. So this is 9-11. And it was surreal. And then when she heard the DJ dedicate uh, her song, Hands, wouldn't that be cool if you were her? To a, a song that I had written, she said, at, at a very dark time in my life, and he dedicated it to America. And it was an unbelievable experience. I'll let you go look up the words to hands later by yourself. But, but my point is that you never know how God might, uh, how, how your salt might you know, be used to preserve others, right? Or, or your light might shine in the lives of others. You never know. It might even be 20 years down the road. Or how God might use your story as it is being written in Christ. See, because our lives are, are supposed to be sort of a concert, right? Uh, where we're meant to sing of God's mercy, of God's grace, of, of his compassion, of his presence, of his love, all those things. But we don't simply sing as a song of appreciation. We sing as an act of proclamation because we are called to that. We want to proclaim it because we've, get, we've gotten so much. And all of our songs are made up of different parts. Each one, uh, you know, points back to God. Every, every little part does. And the verses are sort of a mixture of experiences and attempts at expressing the power of all these moments in our lives and our experiences with God. The songs both cry, are, are a cry of adoration from our hearts of, of this great God that we serve, but also it's an invitation to others to come and sing along with us, right? And we sing loudest and clearest when we serve others well. Our lives point to Jesus. Our service to others is among the greatest opportunities to worship well in this world. Which is why it is imperative to know not just the lyrics of the gospel, in other words, the intellectual bits and pieces of it, but to also know the melody of it, the love behind it, the grace behind it, the mercy behind it. Because truth without love kills, and love without truth lies. We don't want to do either one of those. As 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I, am, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I am praying, personally, I am praying that my, my bank of love and compassion would just be, be filled up. Because sometimes it's difficult right? Sometimes it is difficult. But it is exciting to be able to show the love of God for others. And we have to be intentional and attentive to the needs of others around us so that we can serve them uh, as God intends. One thing we talked about, and I thought it was a brilliant idea this week, is just going through our, 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 our list on, on our church management software and then taking 10 people a week and calling them and saying, hey, how are you doing? How can we pray for you? 
That's very attentive. That's thoughtful, right? I thought that was a great idea. Let's end with a communal reading of Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. If you want to read from the screen, I'm pretty sure it's going to be up there. So why don't you stand up and just follow along with me, read along with me as I, as I begin. Ready? Let no debt remain outstanding. I can't hear you. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen? Amen to that. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords that you have uh, called us to this, that you have filled us with this, that you have empowered us with these things, and we are willing, we are willing to go through whatever is needed to see others know you, experience you, you. to be able to pour back out what you have done to us or for us is a, a very powerful thing, and we ask that you would show us how to do that really, really well. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.